Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Um, this, this, uh, this summer we've been at the park again with our youth ministry, and in 2020, um, when they told us we weren't allowed to really do anything, we went out to the park at Victor Ash, and in the last two years we've been out here at Tommy Shumpert, and um, during the summer we've focused specifically on the life of Jesus and on what he taught why he taught it, the things that he did. It's been a good way for students that are in fifth grade who are coming into sixth grade of youth ministry to kind of get in the youth ministry um, before maybe we go into some other books during the school year. And so um, this summer we've been looking at the miracles that Jesus did. Last summer we did parables, and then this summer we've done miracles. And uh, one thing that you find about miracles is whether it be in Old Testament times, whether it be today, everyone loves a good miracle story, right? I mean, every, everyone loves hearing something that gives us hope, hearing something that helps us believe in something bigger than what we can see with our eyes. It helps us look beyond what is conceivable and what's rational in this world and leads us to trusting in something outside of ourselves. For the believer, I believe that it strengthens us and gives us that childlike faith that Jesus talks about that is required to inherit the kingdom of God. And so as we go through these miracles, one of the things that I found though, and that that I knew and that had been told to me, but then it becomes more evident when I'm the one teaching on it myself, is that Jesus always seems to be more concerned and always seems to come back to the spiritual rather than just a physical miracle. He, he seems to always come back to the spiritual and um, where people are at spiritually. Let me illustrate this with a, just a few miracles that I've done this summer right now. The first one, um, you guys have, w- would be really familiar with this one, even if you've just been in Sunday school, maybe one time in your life, haven't showed up to church much, but there was a man who was paralyzed and he had four friends who have him on his mat or on his bed and they bring him to see Jesus. And there was a crowd that was so big that they couldn't get into the house where Jesus was. And so they go and they get a hole in the roof, drop him down in the roof, and they want Jesus to heal this guy of his paralysis. And Jesus, when he sees the man, he looks at the man and in Luke 5.20, he says something odd. Listen to this. He says, friends, friend, your sins are forgiven. So rather than immediately addressing the man's physical need, he addresses his sins, which made the Pharisees and the people who were there listening, like their eyebrows raise, and they're thinking in their head, who does this guy think he is? But what Jesus shows, if you go on and see the rest of what happens, and this is the man is healed, healed physically, and so he shows that he has power to heal disease, but it also shows that he had the authority to forgive sins. Another one, there's 10 lepers that come to Jesus and and from a distance, because by law, by Mosaic law, they weren't allowed to get near, excuse me, Levitical law, near to where Jesus was, okay? And they they come to him and they shout for mercy. They want mercy, have mercy on us. Leprosy was a, it was a very bad disease and um, you're basically an outcast from society. And Jesus tells them to go and show themselves to the priest, which would have been odd for them because they weren't healed yet. They hadn't been healed, but they obey and they go to the priest. 
And so on their way to go show themselves to the priest, and the reason that they would do this is because if you show yourself to the priest and you actually have been healed, then you will be integrated back into society. They would do some sacrifices and integrate you back into society. Now, we don't see instances really um, where this happens very often, but Jesus tells them to go. All ten of them are going on their way. All ten are healed. And only one returns and worships God. One returns and worships Jesus. And in Luke 17, 19, Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So it comes back to the spiritual again. It comes back to his faith. And in saying this, the implication from Jesus was that the man did not only receive this physical healing, but that spiritually he had also been made well. When Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and he comes in contact with this man who is um, possessed by many demons, a legion of demons, the passage says, and he casts them out and they ask for permission. The demons recognize who Jesus is and they ask for permission to go into this herd of pigs and they go into the herd of pigs and they run into the Sea of Galilee and they drown. When they find this man that had this legion of demons, he is in his right state of mind and he is there listening to Jesus and he actually is begging Jesus to let him get in the boat with him. He's healed and he wants more of Jesus. He wants to be with him, he wants to be around him, he wants to go back with him across the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus had another command for him. He wanted him to do something else. In Luke 8, 39, Jesus said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I think that's interesting in that verse that Jesus says, proclaim what God has done for you. And then the next line follows up and says, he proclaimed what Jesus had done for him because in his mind, it was one and the same. You know, when we look at miracles that Jesus performed, when we, when we pray for a miracle ourselves, I think we need to ask ourselves and, and really look at ourselves and where our heart's at and say, do I want God just because of what he can potentially do for me, or do I really love Jesus? Do I really want to follow Jesus? Do I really want him as my Lord? Do I love the possibility of a miracle, or do I love the miracle worker? Do I, I want to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell, or do I want to go to heaven so that I can be in the presence of Jesus? In John 6, Jesus had been given some, giving some really tough teaching and um, there were people that were following him because they wanted to see miracles. And he gives this tough teaching in John chapter 6. And it says many of the disciples went away. Many, many of the people, they left, but the 12 remained there. And he says to them, are you not going to go away too? And Peter, who gets a lot of flack sometimes, he gets it right here in John chapter 6, verse 68. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the most important thing about the miracles in the scriptures is to point us to who Jesus is, to point us to his authority over people, his authority over the spiritual realm, over demons, his authority even over nature, and, and ultimately his supreme authority over all creation, okay? And in, in the book of John, there's seven signs that point us to who Jesus is as the Messiah. And those seven signs, the first one is changing the water to wine. The second one is healing the royal official son. The third is healing the paralytic at the pool. The fourth is feeding of the 5,000. The fifth is walking on water. The sixth is healing a man born blind. And then the seventh is raising Lazarus from the dead. And today we're going to focus on John chapter 9, the sixth sign, healing the man 
who was born blind. This man probably in his 30s at the time that Jesus has this interaction with him had been born blind, was blind his entire life. And as we look at this miracle, I want you to see the identity change in this man and how he progresses from who he believes Jesus is in the beginning and then when Jesus heals him to who he believes that Jesus is at the very end of the passage. Because he asked, has to ask the answer, excuse me, answer the question multiple times to him about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for him. And I think that all of us have to answer this question. We all will answer this question, who Jesus is and who is he to you personally? Do you know him personally? Okay, the first point is a blind beggar. The first point is a blind beggar, and that's the point because that's who this guy is. That's his identity. He is a blind guy that we find out right from the, the shoot here in, in um, verse 1. And then um, in verse 8, we see that he sat and he, he begged for money. That's what he did. So starting in verse 1, John chapter 9 if I'm going fast today, it's because this whole chapter is one story. I would do this in two parts for youth, but we got to get through 41 verses, okay? So let's start in verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The first thing to notice here in verse 1 that is something that I don't think that, that we would really pay attention to or we give a second thought to otherwise is that it says, as he passed by, speaking of Jesus. And the reason if we just picked up our Bibles and started reading John 9, you wouldn't give much thought to this is because we're not paying attention to what it said at the end of John chapter 8 and what had just happened to Jesus because Jesus had just escaped being stoned. At the end of John chapter 8, Jesus makes a claim of deity, and they want to stone him, and it says that he gets away from him. Read in verse 58 and 59 of John 8, it says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And so he makes this claim, he escapes being stoned, and then the very next verse says, As he was passing by. So here he is now, out in the open, passing by with his disciples, and this is where his disciples make this huge assumption. This huge assumption that this guy, that his ailment, that he was blind, either because of a sin that he committed or something that his parents did. Now, he was born blind, so what's kind of crazy about this or, or um, something that, the, that some of the Jews believed is that there was a life some kind of life, a pre-existing soul that could have sinned. And then also some believe that there could have been sin even that was committed in the womb that led for the, for the person to be born blind. That or something that the parents did. And um, they want to know why though. Whose fault is it? Why is this guy the way he is? Because he is the way he is, so it must be someone's fault. And what I think is um, interesting here is that we don't see anything it doesn't say anything that the disciples, and they've seen Jesus perform miracles, that they're really interested in helping this guy, right? It does, like the first thing they say to him is like, Jesus, heal, you can heal this man. Like, no, they want to know why he is the way that he is. And oftentimes I think that, that we do this in a way that I would call gossip. Someone shares something with you, and maybe at first you're kind of interested in what they're going through. You want to help them, but then you share it with somebody else. And then you want to tell somebody else. And then it's like, well, I need to tell so-and-so so that they can pray for them. And then you're picking up the phone. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about, did you hear about what's going on with so-and-so? 
And then it just turns into a way to talk to people about the problems of someone else to kind of make you feel a little bit better about yourself. And I think the disciples here, they're not really interested in this man being healed. They just want to talk about the guy's problems. They want to talk about him to someone else. And so they ask Jesus why he is the way that he is. And the thing that we see in Jesus' response here in a second is that suffering isn't necessarily the result of your sin or someone else's sin. In the book of Job, there's this same accusation against Job that because these bad things are happening to him, because he's lost his possessions, he's lost his family, it must be because of bad things that he did. There must be some unconfessed sin in his life. But Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is something that, if you read through the Psalms, was concerning to King David. Why did terrible things happen to people that he felt like were living well? And then why did good things or good fortune seem to come to people that were living terrible lives and um, the only good answer to that is we live in a fallen world we live in a world that is full of sin and in John 10 10 it tells us that there's an enemy there's a thief who comes to, to kill and to steal and to destroy it calls him a thief probably in a lot of your translations and he's looking for ways to to wreak havoc and destruction on people's lives He finds sin proclivities, areas that you're susceptible to, and looks to make destruction from that, okay? And there can be bad things that happen as a result. Let me say this. There can be bad things that do happen as a result of the way previous generations lived. Absolutely. I'll give an an example that's like a direct result. Um, Kelsey and I were in the NICU for a couple weeks with, with Macon, who was just born on May 29th. And um, the nurse that we had told us that a lot of the babies in the NICU were in the NICU because um, their mothers were abusing drugs when they were pregnant with them. So there's a direct result of something that a, a mom did that had a physical impact on, on a child. I mean, there's no doubt that the way that people live and the things that people did before them can impact future generations. And I wouldn't argue that. However... God does not directly punish one person's sin because of the sin someone else committed. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So we get to Jesus' answer in, in verse three. It says, Jesus answered, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So it says it's not a result of a specific sin that left this guy blind. The bad things are a lot of times simply due to the fallen condition and the sin curse that we find ourselves in. So Jesus tells them that they will face trouble in this world. And then we see Peter tell us that. We see Paul tell us that. We see Joel the last couple of weeks, he showed us where James tells us that, that you'll face suffering, and it's not something that we like to hear, but suffering can strengthen us. It it can help us be equipped to minister to those who are going through something that we have experienced. Um, A couple weeks after we brought Macon home, I was uh, was playing golf with my buddy Jordan, who helps with um, youth ministry, and he got a call from his wife that she was going into the hospital a little over five weeks before 
their baby was supposed to be born. And a couple days later, their baby was born, and they've been up in the NICU for 15 days now. So that's something that I went through that I experienced that I can have a conversation with him, and I know exactly what he's going through. Our, our baby was born at 34 weeks. There's at, at 35. Suffering can produce patience and perseverance in us, as James said, and it also can reveal to other people your faith, and it can open the doors and give you an opportunity to share why you have the hope that you have. So the end result of this man's suffering was going to be for God's glory. God's work would be revealed in the man. Um, The disaster in this man's life, Jesus would overrule that, and we would see this done for God's glory as he turns to the light of the world, he turns to Jesus. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this light, Jesus, as he speaks of himself in this passage in John 9, has come into the world, but confusion remains, trials remain, temptation remains, sin remains, and the world loves its sin and remains in darkness. In in John 3, 19, it says, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So we can answer this question of suffering and say, why do all these things that happen, why do the things happen that happen? Why are, we, why are we as a culture so confused about so much stuff? Why are we so confused? Why is there so much confusion about gender, something that never seemed to be any, you know, we weren't confused about for, for decades and um, centuries, and now we're confused about that. Sexuality, why, are, why can someone walk into a school and, and kill 20 innocent children? Why have there been 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade in 19... 19- 73, why do people worship creation rather than God, the creator? Why are there so many broken relationships? And some of these things are not, it doesn't seem like they're any fault of our own, but we live in darkness. And scripture tells us that people love darkness more than light, and so bad things remain. But Jesus is still light, and, and he says, um, he says that he, they would continue to do work, and he includes the disciples in this work while it is still day. So when he says while it is still day, he's speaking of when he was still on earth. He goes on in verse 6 and says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus goes on to heal this man and a pretty gross way, really. I mean, he had to spit a lot to be able to make mud to put on this guy's eyes. Um, I was doing a sermon recently out at the park, so it wasn't inside, but there was a student that was sitting in the front row, and it was like a basketball-sized puddle of spit as he sat with, like this with his head between his knees the entire time I spoke and continued to spit like he had a big dip in or something. He didn't, but uh, yeah, it's kind of gross. You're like, dude, chill out. It's kind of gross. So Jesus, he had to spit a lot though to make this mud, and that would have been extremely offensive um, to Jewish people, but why did he do this? Why would this happen? Why did you choose this way to heal? We really don't know. You know, some people say that uh, there's some commentaries you might find that say, like, God created from the dirt and Jesus was going back to the dirt to create, maybe to even create eyeballs or something like that. But it doesn't say that. Like, we don't know that. That's a theory. But it's not what's important. What's important is that Jesus heals in a variety of ways 
to show that he has authority and he has power to heal. He might touch one person. He might call demons out of another person. He might just command that someone's healed for someone else. Maybe someone might touch him and they're healed. We see healing in different ways. What's important is the power of God that is present in Jesus. So Jesus makes spit. He sends this man to the pool of Siloam. This pool was a 225-foot public um, bath, had steps down into it. It was discovered in an excavation in 2004 within the um, walls of Jerusalem. I think we have a picture of that. There we go. Maybe on your next vacation, go to the pool of Siloam. So he sends him to this pool, and um, it takes some faith. It takes some obedience for this guy to go. He didn't, he didn't guarantee healing. I mean, it's not like this guy has many other choices. He's been blind his whole life. But it does take faith and obedience to go. He didn't promise the guy's sight. But he goes here, and he, he obeys, and he washes, and his sight is restored. After his sight is restored, it says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. You'll notice as we go through this passage that the guy that was healed, he kind of just sticks to the basic facts. He doesn't try to think of why did this happen or how did this happen. He just tells what happened. He just tells what happened. But there's people who no longer even really recognize the guy because he's had such a physical change. He was only known as the blind beggar. That was his identity. That's who he was. He was a blind beggar. But people, people notice this physical change. And in the same way, when we've been born again, when, when we've been made new spiritually, when we've received a spiritual birth, people shouldn't be able to notice and recognize it should be so foreign who we were before. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that those who are in Christ are new creations, that the old person's gone and the new is here. So this transformation for this man was so significant um, that many people found it hard to believe that it was the same guy. They were more willing to believe, they were more willing to believe that it was a different person than that God had actually healed the man and done a great work in this man's life. And people do the same thing today when it comes to miracles or, or when it comes to th things that seem like hard to believe or take a lot of faith. I mean, if you look at the resurrection, there's a, there's a ton of different theories of why Christians believe the resurrection and why it didn't happen. None of them are, are very good or have very good backing, but they'd prefer believe that than that Jesus was raised for the dead. People are way more willing to believe in whatever modern evolution teaches than to believe what God has made plain to them in creation, as Romans 1 says. So these people like faith. How about the man that was healed? This is all he's got right now. It was a guy named Jesus, and he healed me, and this is how he did it. He's not saying anything specific about Jesus. He, he's not throwing out details. There was a guy named Jesus he healed me, and this is how he did it. He, he doesn't know where Jesus is from. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't know um, that Jesus has made um, claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and some of the things he said that would certainly insinuate that. But what he does have now is a story to tell. The second point is a testimony to tell. In verse 13 and 14, now the Pharisees want to talk to him. Who the, the, They wouldn't have cared before. They wouldn't have cared to see this guy before. Now he's healed 
People are saying it's the guy named Jesus that did it. They want to talk to him. They want him to change his story is really why they want to talk to him is what we'll see. In verse 13 and 14, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been, bl- been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Seven times we see Jesus perform a miracle on the Sabbath, and it upsets the Pharisees and that, that misinterpreted what the Sabbath was all about. They have a separate book in Judaism called the Mishnah, and um, it gives rules of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And um, an example is if you had a broken bone, that could be fixed if it was life-threatening. But if it wasn't life-threatening, then you couldn't place the bone on the Sabbath. And um, it was okay for Jesus to spit as much as he wanted to on the Sabbath, but it wasn't okay for him to make mud. So... This fell under a list of 39 classes of work that was forbidden on the Jewish Sabbath, okay? And Jesus, though, however, he, he came and he declared authority even over the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, 8, he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is one of the areas that the Pharisees um, and the religious leaders tried to catch Jesus up in a lot. They tried to catch him up in doing something on the Sabbath and bring an accusation against him. And this is because they were more concerned with tradition and policies than they were people, all right, they were more concerned with these things than they were people. And Jesus was more concerned with being a servant to others. Elsewhere, he heals a man that had a withered hand, and he declares that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So they go on in verse 15. It says, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs And there was division among them. So this man, he's facing pressure to change his story, which the pressure is going to get amped up. And um, he stays bold. He doesn't back down from it. And it causes division among these mighty religious leaders, these Pharisees. There were two groups of Pharisees. The Shammai, they basically argued foundational principles. If this is what we've written, this stands. So he did this. He broke the law. He must be a sinner. The Hillel, they more tried to look at the facts and and interpret things a little bit differently, but it caused division among them. And Jesus often divides rather than uniting people. Of course, the church should be united, but there's often division that comes up. He, He says as much. So right here, it's either Jesus is a sinner or we have misunderstood the Sabbath. And most of them are too prideful and not willing to get to that point that we've misunderstood the Sabbath. So they say Jesus is a sinner. And we take a side regarding Jesus just as they did. And if we refuse to take a side with Jesus, then we stand against him. There were some like Nicodemus who believed. And uh, in John chapter 3 verse 2, it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He didn't want other people to see him at the time. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He, he examined the facts, examined what was going on, and he believed. But the sad thing is most of the people, even the religious leaders who might have believed, they went along with the crowd. They went along with the crowd, and it's still the easy thing for us to do. I think Joel said um, when we were talking about wisdom in the book of James that we have so much knowledge, but we lack wisdom. And because we lack wisdom, whatever the popular thing is of the day, we will hop right on board. Whatever is right in the moment, we'll say, okay, that you know, eh, it's, it's kind of a gray area, but it seems like 
everyone else thinks it's okay, it must be okay. But as believers, we're required to take a stand for truth and come out of darkness that the world pushes our way and live in the light. It goes on in verse 17, and it says, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Now they want him to confess what he believes about Jesus. And he said, he is a prophet. So here's what I said earlier, the most significant question you can answer. Who is Jesus, but who is he to you personally? What do you say about him? That's the question that's coming to this man. You see, all major world religions believe something about Jesus. The Buddhist people believe that he was a good man. Muslim people, they believe that he was a prophet. He was a good prophet. Even the demons believe, as we saw, um, as we saw recently, as we talked about in James. They believe the facts about Jesus, but it doesn't lead to salvation. The disciples were asked this question, and again, Peter uh, is getting some love today because he got this one right too. It says in Matthew 16, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter got the answer right. But this formerly blind beggar, he has gone from Jesus was a man who healed him to maybe he's a prophet. He's advancing in what he's thinking about Jesus. He's thinking about it more, okay, he did this, he must be a prophet. This, this isn't an answer that saves you though, right? So, so who is Jesus? Who is he to you personally? Is he a religious figure or is he Lord of your life? They call in the man's parents in John 9, 18 through 23. It says the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And, they, and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this, these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the religious leaders, they don't believe the guy. They call his parents in not to celebrate that this great thing had happened, but to interrogate the parents. All right? And um, the parents, they feel being kicked out of the synagogue and this isn't just like being kicked out for a day. This is like being excommunicated. They're not allowed back in the synagogue if that happens, okay? So what do we see? They're more concerned with what people say about them than standing up for their son. They're more concerned with pleasing men than they are pleasing God. So they plead ignorance. And I feel like we're so often unwilling to address people to stand for truth, to stand for things that, have been, that, that seem basic, to, Stand for things that seem clear from Scripture because we're worried about what someone else might say. Luke 9, 26 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I realize that it um, might seem harder in this country maybe for, for you to speak out what you believe in or maybe even you're worried in some cases at your job, will I be able to keep my job if I said something like this or if I posted this on social media and stuff, and I'm not saying you need to go post a bunch of stuff on social media, but, but I saw an article, even an example back in May, and um, it was 
about Lee University who, I don't know if it was something new in their bylaws or if it was something they always had, but it was basically just taking a biblical stance on marriage, gender, some of these different cultural issues at the time, and uh, it blew up. I mean, they were getting negative publicity in major newspapers, something that seemed like not that big of a deal. Um, if, if you look in, in the month of June, there was some, a lot of negative publicity just for some baseball players on a bunch of, on a, all the sports channels, especially ESPN, for that month because they said, you know, it, it doesn't align with our beliefs. We're not going to put the rainbow flag on our jerseys. Even in the church sometimes, they become absent from some hard truths. I saw a pastor recently say that there are churches today that believe that they can bring the sinner to the light by turning off the light. There are churches today that believe they can bring the sinner to the light by turning off the light. So if we just don't give everything, the things that would offend someone, we don't talk about that, we don't say those things, we get them involved, we get them engaged, and then eventually we'll start to share Jesus and that's the way that we're gonna do it, but we don't wanna say something that's gonna offend. If, if you, you've been to church, if you go to church, if this church, I can say this today because Joel's not here, no, he, he would say the same thing. If there's a church that, if this church will not stand for biblical truth, it's a place that you shouldn't be. I'm not saying that you need to be to a place that's totally legalistic and offers no forgiveness and doesn't come along and offer grace where people are at. Absolutely. There needs to be a stand on truth too. They're not, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand, okay? Um, it might feel tough sometimes though. It might feel tough right now to stand on truth, but for the Sanhedrin, they were an intimidating group of people. It was tough for this guy that had nothing, was a blind beggar, for him to stand up to them. I mean, they rejected Jesus, and they rejected those who confessed Jesus. They added political pressure not to follow Jesus. In John 12, 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, speaking of Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out from the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So because of the pressure of the Sanhedrin, many people, religious leaders, authority figures that did believe, they loved their status more than Jesus so they would not confess him. But this man who encountered Jesus, who had been born blind, who Jesus had healed, he was bold. In verse 24, it says, for a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So they didn't get everything that they wanted from his parents. They bring the guy back. It's not enough that Jesus just healed this person. They say, give glory to God. What they're saying here is basically tell the truth. You are standing before us. You're standing before God. Tell the truth. And when they say tell the truth, what they mean is agree with us that Jesus is a sinner. Agree with us that this man that healed you is a sinner. Affirm what we believe so that we don't have a lot of other people who are believing what you believe. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a beautiful verse, right? It, it, this is where we get our words um, from amazing grace. And, and I'll say this, like, 
You might not know everything, but you can testify to what you do know. You can testify for what Jesus has done for you in your life. Don't forfeit what you do know because of something that you don't know. Say, let me talk to someone about that. Let me get back to you. But don't forfeit what you do know because of what you don't know. People can insult you, but they can't take away your personal testimony. This man doesn't have all the answers, but he knows he was blind, and now he has sight. And he knows that a guy named Jesus gave him healing, and so he boldly proclaims it. In verse 26 and 27, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? A question they have already asked, right? He's answered this question. And he says in 27, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So this man's simply giving a testimony about what happened to him, about what Jesus did in his life. He's not even proclaiming like Jesus is the Messiah or anything at this point. He's just saying what he knows to be true. And his frustration with their line of questioning leads him to say something in verse 27 that makes them really, really mad. He asks them if they want to be Jesus' disciples too, which leads to the third point. The third point is a heart hardened, a heart hardened. We see Jesus quote from prophecy and show how the, the religious leaders, the Jewish people at that time, that their hearts, were, they'd be dull. They wouldn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They wouldn't understand what was in front of them. Their, their sin would blind them, and they wouldn't recognize Jesus, the Lord, right there in front of them. And this was all part of a plan that Jesus was going to go to the cross, all in God's sovereignty, and that the message would go to the Gentiles. All part of God's plan. So he asked, do you want to be his disciple? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So they think they're disciples of Moses, but Jesus says this in John 5, 45 and 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So if they truly were following Moses, they would recognize who Jesus was. If they truly followed the law that they said they followed, they would recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of that law because God spoke to Moses. Moses led the people um, with God out of Egypt, God gave him the law. And now Jesus is standing in front of them, the very fulfillment of that law. If they followed Moses, they would recognize who Jesus was. In verse 30, the man answered, why is this an amazing thing to you? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. So rather than backing down, the guy is becoming more and more bold. He's asking them, how do you know where he comes from? He, he opened my eyes because the, the man probably is familiar with some scripture, probably some scripture about a blind person since he is a blind person. In Psalm 146, 8, it says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. In Isaiah 35, 5, it says, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So scripture says it's the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind and Jesus opened this man's eyes. He goes on in verse 31. He continues and says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began, began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he raises this argument here, and it's a good argument. And the first point here in his argument is um, that God doesn't listen to sinners, or like he's not obligated to listen to sinners. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says, um, speaking to Israel, because um, they were going to be sent into exile, God was not listening to their cries anymore. They had disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Like, we're all sinners. Surely God listens to somebody, right? Listen, we are all sinners, and God, if you humble yourself, if you come to him with a humble heart, a repentant heart, he will not turn you away. Yes, God will listen. But if you continue to live a life, this unrepentant lifestyle, and your heart grows hardened and callous, and you are prideful in your sin, God is not obligated to listen to that. And Isaiah tells us that he doesn't. Second point is God obviously heard Jesus. The common Jewish view was that miracles were performed to answer prayer, and it seems like that God answered and this man was healed. So Jesus must not be in sin. And then thirdly, we see that there wasn't a single instance of a man who was born blind being healed like this, even throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout all the history. No record of this happening, but Jesus did it. And so he lays out this argument, and rather than getting something, anything back, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they cast out this guy. They got nothing more to debate. They throw him out of the synagogue. They insult him. They reject him. They try to embarrass him, persecute him, and excommunicate him. Okay? And all he did was wash mud off of his eyes and tell people who the person was that did it. I believe that if you take a stand for Jesus in our culture, in the culture that we live in, you'll face some persecution. Now, it might be mild here right now. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I mentioned just some slight little things earlier. One of the things that I have in my daily reading is to read about persecuted believers. And whether it's um, talking to someone about a pastor that they know that there was a suicide attempt on their life and that pastor says, if this man would have known Jesus, he would not have tried to kill me. I need to share Jesus with him. Or it's people in villages in Central Asia um, or, or in Africa that have been thrown out of their village or people that have been placed in prison for their faith. It's a real thing. Persecution is a real thing. It's to be expected for believers. And it happens to this man right here just for saying what happened to him. These Pharisees, they'd grown hardened and callous and had kept them from seeing their own sin. It had kept them from believing in Jesus, the Messiah. They were blinded to truth. And because they don't have anything good to say back to the guy, because it seems like this is over, this is going nowhere, because he is not doing what they want him to do, they just attack him personally. They tell him, you were born in utter sin. That's their argument back. This is an ad hominem attack. It's just an attack at the person. 
Maybe you've been having a conversation with someone before and it seems like, okay, I feel like we're making progress. I, I shared this, we're getting somewhere. And then the person just attacks you personally. They attack your, you know, where you were from, your race, your parents, your upbringing. You only believe this because you were born here, because of this, because of that. And there's nothing that has to do with the actual argument. It's just attacking you as a person. So they rejected him and that's what they did. They tell him, you were born in utter sin. You're gonna tell us something? So they reject him, but there's one who accept him, accepted him, and that's Jesus. And that leads to the final point, which is a soul saved. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. This is in verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? <clears throat> so at this point, he... He doesn't know. He's not sure. He knows he's been healed physically, but he doesn't know for sure. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So where this man was rejected by the world, he was a soul worth saving to Jesus. At first, this man receives physical healing. He's able to tell about that, and now we see that he receives spiritual healing. He went from knowing Jesus as this man named Jesus who told me to do this thing to he must be a prophet and now he knows him as Lord and Savior. And maybe in some of your translations in your Bible that first, um, I said sir in verse 36. Maybe it says Lord for you guys that um, he answered and he called him sir. Maybe some of your translations say Lord. Either one works. He's showing him respect in verse 36 is what he's doing. But then in verse 38, when he uses the word Lord, it's, it's different right there. It's different how he uses it in verse 38. And he's acknowledging Jesus now as the Messiah. He believes, he believes that Jesus is who he said he was. And so he worships him. His identity goes from being a blind beggar to being a worshiper and a follower of Jesus. They wouldn't let this man worship at the temple, but Jesus would receive his worship. You know, it's interesting if you go through the book of Acts and you see um, the apostles, when, when someone falls and worships them, what do they always say? Get, you know, get up. Don't, don't do that. I'm just a man too. When we see Jesus heal someone and they worship him, he receives that worship. Jesus receives your worship. You know, some of us, maybe you never worship. In song, in praise, in thanksgiving, but can you really believe what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you in your heart, and it not be reflected outwardly just a little bit? You know, we worship things. Joel mentioned going to college football games. I'm going to go to a lot of high school football games here in the fall. I know people are going to be screaming and cheering. Even more so when you go to a college game, go to a concert, go to lots of things. People are fine making noise. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says this. He has delivered us. This is what God has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you know Jesus this way, when you understand him in this way, the way that this blind man did at the end of this story, then the response is overflowing worship. It goes on in, 
and this passage concludes in John 9 and verses 39 through 41, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see and those who, excuse me, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is a dividing line. Jesus has come. Some people are going to reject him. Some people are going to receive him. He came to bring salvation. But with that, for those who don't believe him, those who don't receive him, comes condemnation. Because they have not believed in the one true son of God. So Jesus gives sight to the, to the blind, literally here, but also spiritual sight to see, to, to know who he is and to believe. He gives them spiritual eyes to see truth. You know, one of the things that Jesus called the Pharisees was blind guides. He calls them this because they claimed to know God, but their hearts were far from him. And the Pharisees, they sneered at Jesus. They trusted in their own spiritual insight and their own self-righteousness. And they were spiritually blind, although they claimed to see. And Jesus is saying, if you would admit your spiritual blindness, if you were blind, you, you could be given sight. But because you trust in your own self-righteousness, you remain in your sin. Because you trust in something that you can do for yourself, you remain in your sin. He says it a different way in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, I think even a lot of times in, in the church, it's like um, we trust in Jesus a little bit, but we still view ourselves. We don't view our sin for how wicked our sin is. We still view ourselves as pretty good people. Like the Pharisees, this is how they viewed themselves as righteous. Maybe you don't view yourself as righteous on your own, but th that's how they did. And it was this blind guy that thought nothing of himself, that received sight and received spiritual insight and became a follower of Jesus. It, it's the person who understands that I am blind, that I am sick, I have nothing of myself and I trust in the one who can give me everything. I trust in the one who did everything. I don't trust in myself. You know, the common thought among most people that you talk to, I had a conversation out on the street on Monday, a conversation about this. I had a conversation when I was coming back from um, Honduras, that one day that I was down there, when I, I came back sitting next to a guy on the plane who, who grew up in, and um, grew up Mormon. And... He wasn't sure what he believed, just like the guy that I, I talked to the other night. And um, in both cases, the answer was they were pretty good. They told me the things that they did. And they told me, you know, I, I believe in God, and I believe that if there is a God, a just God would let me come to heaven because I've been good. But a just God punishes sin, and that sin was punished when Jesus took the punishment on the cross and it's only trusting in what he did that will give us life 
Another one maybe that's, that's more common, I was watching, or, or that w- would resonate more. I was watching, um, I think last Sunday night, it was on the SEC network, a, a thing about like the history of the SEC or something. And Nick Saban, the coach at Alabama, was on there. And maybe you guys have heard some about his upbringing, grew up in West Virginia. And um, his dad was like really, really, really hard on him, really strict on him. And, you know, a lot of Tennessee fans in here, you might, maybe you can't stand Nick Saban. It seems some of the things he, he does, though, you got to acknowledge, he does some things that are pretty good, okay? And so in his mind, I don't even know how it got on this, but I'm watching this interview. I was like, wow, that fits. He says, when you stand before your maker, what matters is what you did. What matters is what you did. The good things you did, the bad things you did, and who you helped. In Matthew 7, there's people that stand before God, and they talk about the things that they did. They talk about the demons that they cast out in Jesus' name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I pray everyone in here that you understand that our self-righteousness When it comes to the eternal lens of things, it's not gonna save. It's Jesus entrusting in who he is and what he's done for you. And when this happens, there's a true identity change. There will be a true identity change in your life. The way that there was in this man who went from Jesus was a guy that healed me to Jesus is a prophet to wow, this is Lord, I'm going to worship him. Your pursuits will change, the world around you will change because God himself has given you eyes to see who he is. You could bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Maybe there's someone in here this morning that um, you just feel like you've never received that. You've never trusted in Jesus' finished work, his finished work on the cross. Maybe, Maybe you've tried to do a little bit to help out there. I want to invite you this morning, if that's you, to say, Lord, I confess that I am a sinner and there is no good in me, Lord, apart from you. And I trust in you, Jesus, your finished work on the cross. I believe, God, that you love me. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again from the dead. And today I receive you as Lord of my life by trusting in what you have done for me, Jesus. I repent of my sin, come into my life and make me a new person. For the rest of us in here, I pray today for boldness and for courage like this man that was born blind. And maybe it was because he had nothing to lose. This blind guy that sat on the street and beg for money. And when Jesus did something for him, he was not scared to share it. God, I pray that this congregation would be bold, that we would go out and that we would share the love of Christ, that we would share your truth in love, and that we would just be bold in our faith, and that we would see more people come to you, and that we would see fruit, Lord, come from this church, Lord. We thank you, God for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for making a way. 
where there was no way. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.